Growing up, my mother would often take us to the various affordable family fun spots around our section of the Valley of the Sun. One of those spots was the Phoenix Zoo, nestled in the alien-looking red sandstone hills of Papago Park. As interesting as the zoo itself is, something else always caught my eye every time we visited. Toward the back of the zoo, there was an incredibly large and rocky enclosure for bighorn sheep and several small telescopes so you could spot the animals on the hillside. But from that spot, you couldn't miss a prominent white pyramid that was placed on one of the hills in the park adjacent to the zoo. I remember looking at it often during our visits, this random pyramid that literally gleamed in the desert sun. And I had to wonder what it was and why it had been placed in such a weird spot. I don't remember how old I was when I learned the answer. The pyramid was known as Hunt's Tomb and was a grave marker for Hunt, his wife, and various other family members. I also don't remember how old I was when I learned that this person, Hunt, had been elected Arizona's first governor. But I do remember being sort of in awe about what sort of man had the honor of being the first person to lead the state of Arizona, and that he deserved such a prominent grave marker commemorating his life. Admittedly, I was a lot more naive then about the nature of power in politics, but even now I have to admit that George W.P. Hunt does sort of stand apart as a singular figure, someone who draws the historian's eye much as his tomb today draws the eyes of millions of zoo-goers. And now I can finally answer for all of you what sort of man, warts and all, it was that had the honor of becoming Arizona's first chief executive. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 169, The Making of a Progressive Politician. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we traced the election of the first slate of officials to guide the brand new state of Arizona, including such men as Marcus Aurelius Smith, still one of my all-time favorite names, by the way, Henry F. Ashurst, and probably most importantly, Carl Hayden. We also followed closely the election of George W.P. Hunt to the governorship a position that he had wanted for years. Hunt was an unusual figure for a politician in many ways. Bald, rather rotund, and inarticulate, with a strong dislike for campaigning, parentally scared of losing, and prone at times to being both too stubborn and too indecisive. However, he also became a force in Arizona politics, often a controversial one, for the next two decades, whether he was in office or not. It's been a while since I have suspended the narrative to go down a biographical rabbit hole, but if there was ever a time to do it again, it would be now. I will say right up front that the majority of what follows comes from David R. Berman's biography of Hunt, which I think did a wonderful job of portraying the man without lionizing or demonizing him. 
George Wiley Paul Hunt had been born on November 1st, 1859 in the town of Huntsville, Missouri. And yes, Hunt was born in Huntsville, as his community had been named for his grandfather, who was one of the first settlers in the area. But unlike many stories that begin with such factoids, Hunt was not really born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Most of his extended family had strong Confederate ties and were forced to flee to St. Louis for safety as guerrilla attacks broke out in the area during the Civil War. When the family returned following the end of that conflict, they found a lot of their property had been heavily damaged. Furthermore, while just a teenager, his father lost most of his money in the nationwide Panic of 1873, and so Hunt and his family struggled to get by on subsistence farming and whatever they could sell. This being the case, Hunt had only eight years of school, with a school year consisting of four months of public school during the winter and three months of subscription schooling during the summer. In between farm work, farm work, and more farm work, that is. He would later recall that he once failed a test because his family was too poor to buy a textbook. He did well in history and geography, but was terrible at grammar, which he disliked. This type of poor upbringing impacted Hunt greatly, and in his later crusades to protect the rights of minors and even convicts, not to mention offering free textbooks to public school children, you can see the effect this produced on him. The other thing we need to keep in mind about his upbringing is that he did not have a happy family life. Though he had fond memories of his mother, who was inclined toward reading, there is no sugarcoating the fact that she and his father simply did not get along. Hunt would later recall that his parents were just unsuited for each other, which caused strife and contention in the household. It didn't help matters either that his father, while a good man in some respects, was also an angry, abusive drunk. With that kind of background and a natural ambition and desire to see the world, Hunt decided that getting out of Huntsville would be best. So on March 3rd, 1878, at the age of 18, he actually ran away from home, leaving at four in the morning with only a few dollars in his pocket. His family would actually not hear from him for several years, and he would only return to Huntsville once in 1900 after his father had died. The funny part of that story is he wasn't solely returning for familial reasons, but squeezed it in between being a delegate to the Democratic National Convention in Kansas City and going to St. Louis and Chicago to arrange for goods for his store in Globe. To his credit, he did later write that the reunion with his mother after 22 years was the highlight of the trip. After he left home, Hunt began three years of wandering to find out where exactly he belonged. He would roam the Mountain West in the finest hobo style, jumping into the boxcars of freight trains. One time he was caught in this act, and a railroad employee made him jump from a moving train. A fortunately placed sandpile helped cushion that particularly nasty experience. He took up prospecting in Colorado, but failed, finally resorting to dishwashing and other menial chores in a hotel of a small mining town. From there, he drifted down to New Mexico, again tried prospecting, but again wound up doing a litany of odd jobs, including running a ferry and working in more hotels. 
news of a gold strike in neighboring Arizona eventually caught his attention, and he decided to try his hand again at mining. With a couple of companions, he entered the territory in 1881, making it to Safford after dodging some Apache. From there, he and one companion headed up to Globe, where they looked like any down-on-their-luck miners, wearing plain overalls and riding burrows. We talked about the origins of Globe back in episode 74, but I should stress that at this point, it was still a relatively isolated mining camp. The silver mines were starting to play out by this point, but the old Dominion mine and its wealthy copper deposits had opened. Still, it was a nearly week-long trip to Globe from Florence, and a railroad wouldn't reach the town for another 17 years. Also, in the years immediately after Hunt arrived in Globe, the Pleasant Valley War would erupt to the northwest. Though, remember that the Grahams had originally come from Globe, and that partisans on both sides frequented the community. We also shouldn't forget that Geronimo and other renegade Apache were still causing trouble. So, I can imagine that the not-well-educated, working-man Hunt fit in pretty well with his new neighbors, and we can again see how his time in Globe affected the man who would be governor. Shortly after arriving in town, Hunt watched the execution of two men, an experience that informs his later position against the death penalty. He also started working at the very bottom. I'm not sure if the prospecting thing just didn't work out again, but we soon find him waiting tables in a dingy little restaurant, working 16 hours a day and earning $50 a month. He would spend two and a half years as a waiter before taking a low-paying job at the Old Dominion Mine as a mucker, which is just someone who shovels ore into mining carts. Both these jobs left him with a very pro-labor point of view that would never leave him. He was even part of a waiter's union that he was very active in, even if it didn't change his actual work conditions that much. As I hope I have impressed upon you by now, mining is a very fickle business, and the price of copper fell in the 1880s so much that the old Dominion mine actually closed down for a time. During this period, Hunt, like so, so many people before him, tried his luck in California, but eventually found himself right back in Globe. He would try his hand at cattle ranching in 1887, but this didn't seem to go much better for him than all his other enterprises, and in 1890, he took a job as a delivery man and clerk for the A. Bailey Company, a mercantile and banking firm that would soon be purchased by the Old Dominion Commercial Company. As you might have guessed, this is the rags portion of Hunt's rags to riches story. And it's during this time that we do see him starting to become prominent in the community. For example, in 1887, he was a guest at a masquerade ball hosted by the Globe Athletic Club. In 1900, after 10 years with the Old Dominion Commercial Company, Hunt had even worked himself up from clerk to president, which helped make him moderately wealthy for the first time in his life. However, he never lost that connection with the plight of individual miners and the working man, and would forever be known as pro-labor, despite now being technically part of the man. 
Berman relates an incident where the manager of a private detective agency came to Hunt in the early 1900s and suggested that it might be good for Hunt to hire a few of his detectives to tail workers around and keep tabs on where they went and whom they met up with. This suggestion made Hunt livid, and he declared that he would not have anything to do with the agency. And before we start diving into his political career, I should also mention that on February 24th, 1904, Hunt married Helen Dewitt Ellison after a long courtship. Both were older, he was 44 and his bride 36, and had gotten married despite their differences. Dewitt had worked as the right-hand man for her father in his cattle operation, while Hunt didn't even ride a horse. However, she was compassionate and encouraged Hunt to champion some of the progressive ideas of the day, including banning drinking, gambling, and prize fighting. The pair would have one child, a daughter named Virginia, who was born in 1905. Dewitt would die in 1931 following a surgery for acute appendicitis, and she was actually the first person buried in that white pyramid tomb we started the episode with. But as a convenient transition, I will say that Hunt wrote to his wife a lot, and his letters to her give us a glimpse into his mindset throughout much of his political career. Speaking of, and see how convenient that transition was? Hunt began his climb up the political ladder in 1890. Or I should say that he tried to start his climb up the political ladder in 1890 because he was defeated in the election to become the Gila County Recorder. However, two years later, with some help from seasoned Democrats, Hunt would be elected to the first of his six terms in the territorial legislature. Much like his governorships, these were not six consecutive terms, but rather he was elected to the 18th, 19th, 20th, 23rd, 24th, and 25th legislatures. He would start off in the House of Representatives, where he was quickly considered an odd duck. He didn't drink, he didn't gamble, and aware of his own shortcomings, did not give any speeches his first term. He even turned down a free rail pass that many other legislators took, which the railroads may have overlooked at the moment, not realizing that the anti-corporation Hunt was starting to show his true colors. By this time, Hunt had become enamored with the populist and progressive movements of his day, and might have been more reform-minded than any one of his fellow Democrats in the territory. Before this, he had been loyal to the Democratic Party that surrounded President Grover Cleveland, but Cleveland's stance on the gold standard and his handling of a nationwide railroad strike, known as the Pullman Strike, helped separate Hunt from that wing of the party. Now firmly entrenched in the progressive camp, Hunt would spend his first couple terms championing ideas that were a little too, well progressive for his fellow legislators. So we have several measures that he supported that were doomed to quick and ignominious deaths. This includes women's suffrage, a cause that Hunt espoused, even if he at times could be very wishy-washy with his support. He also tried to pass legislation imposing limits on what private water companies could charge. Finally, he tried to ban prize fighting, which he considered a relic of barbarism. One notable bill from his first foray into territorial politics, and not just because it passed, is something I mentioned back in episode 144. In 1893, Hunt sponsored a measure to raise the bounty on the head of the fugitive Apache kid from $500 to 5000 
dead, or alive. The bill was fitting with the tenure of the times, but given Hunt's future disdain of capital punishment, it's delightfully ironic. He himself appears to have been stunned with how bloodthirsty he was at the time. Although, backing this measure did have some benefits. In 1894, he was appointed chair of the Committee of Military Affairs, despite being in the Republican-controlled legislature, because of his warlike attitude when it came to hunting down the kid. During his time in the legislature, which includes stints in the Territorial Council and serving as president of the council twice, Hunt also began what I feel was a lifelong activity for him, loathing the territorial legislature. He came to hate the way the legislature operated, which he regarded as corrupt and inefficient. This animosity would only grow as he butted heads with the state legislature again and again during his time in the governorship. Also, he grew increasingly frustrated that so many of his bills simply up and died. At one point in 1895, when a motion was made to indefinitely postpone one of his bills, the press describes Hunt rising to his feet in rage and threatening the members of the legislature that if they moved to kill his bill, he would work against every single bill of theirs until the end of the session. His fellow legislators were shocked at this outburst, but however much they may have been aghast at his lack of decorum, they still killed the motion and eventually passed Hunt's bill. Okay, you might be asking, if Hunt hates the place so much and can't get anything done without threatening people, why does he, you know, keep running? Well, that's a very good question and ultimately one that only Hunt himself knows the answer to. But Berman speculates that, for Hunt, the spotlight of politics helped keep at bay some of his worst fears, that of being old, penniless, and forgotten. Plus, those rare moments when people wrote to him to say thank you for championing this or that bill seemed to sustain him, though he always professed his hatred of both campaigning and dealing with all those other politicians in government. From what I read, it seems to me that he also felt that he was fighting the good fight, even when he would rather not. As Berman says, he was not a happy warrior, but he was a warrior. And as the 1890s were coming to a close, we start getting a sense of what Hunt was fighting for. He started positioning himself as a good government type, stressing efficiency and reform, while also starting to take more and more swings at his preferred targets, corporations. In 1897, for example, he went after company towns, places where one mining company owned everything from the houses to the hospitals. Hunt managed to get a bill passed through the council that would have abolished the paying of employees in company scrip, or boletas, which could only be used at the outrageously expensive company stores. However, the Arizona Copper Company managed to use its influence to kill this bill when it came up in the house. It's during these years, too, that he began to really champion those rallying cries we talked about so much lately, the voter initiative, referendum, and recall. For Hunt, these were important measures to bypass the legislature, which could become greedy, corrupt, and lazy, and really let the people govern. 
He tried to pass a bill allowing for the initiative in 1897, but this was defeated. In 1900, after becoming president of the Old Dominion Commercial Company, Hunt decided not to run for re-election and spent the next four years becoming the mayor of Globe, strengthening the Democratic Party, and, as we've seen, getting married. However, he decided to run again in 1904 for reasons that he never really said, but the winds did seem to be shifting slightly, with a much more labor-friendly view taking a hold of the territorial legislature. Once back on the council, he was voted its president, showing just how well he had learned to play the game in the last 15 years. From that top seat, he again tried to act as a fiscal conservative and populist, decrying his fellow legislators for taking free railroad passes and billing taxpayers for junkets that turned out to be nothing more than vacations. He also gladly joined in with the rest of the legislature in denouncing the asinine wisdom of the U.S. Congress that was pushing the idea of combining Arizona and New Mexico into a single state. During the next few sessions leading up to statehood, Hunt would be involved with his twin favorite types of legislation, morality issues and sticking corporations in the eye with a stick. For the former, this involved laws to keep women and children out of saloons, trying to outlaw gambling, and raising taxes on liquor dealers enough to drive a lot of cheap saloons out of business. When it came to the latter, one of the issues that he was particularly working on was regulating what he considered outrageous rates for passengers and freight on trains. He would say that, quote, the railroads in their selfish desire to get all they can are retarding the country more than anything else, end quote. Though he would start on the idea of rate regulation in 1905, it became a never-ending project. A fun little side story is that in 1909, he was knee-deep in some intense negotiations with rail lines regarding rate regulation when the Silver Belt newspaper and Globe printed a story saying that one meeting took place in the office of a railroad lobbyist. The meeting had actually taken place in the same building, but not in the office of the lobbyist himself. Incensed by the insinuation that he and his fellow legislators had gone hat in hand to the office of a lobbyist to clandestinely set up a favorable deal for the railroads, Hunt again went ballistic. Confronting the offending reporter on the legislative floor, he screamed, quote, You're a liar, you're a damned liar, get out. End quote. It was only after the reporter had shown appropriate contrition that Hunt allowed him back into the council chambers. In the same vein, during these sessions, we also see Hunt really trying to stick it to copper corporations, backing proposals by Governor Joseph Kibbe to increase taxes on the mines, or better said, make them pay what they should have been paying in taxes all along. As we'll talk about next week, this would become something of a crusade for Hunt, and when he sat in the big chair, he would spend a lot of his time going after mining companies to make them pay more and more in taxes. However, this is where he met his stiffest resistance, as the mines were powerful and were not inclined to give up any of the preferential treatment they had been given over the years. As one higher up at the Cananea Consolidated Copper Company warned Hunt, quote, Knock the copper mines and you knock Arizona, end quote. A Republican leader from New Mexico wrote to him that maybe he should 
cool it a little because all of this anti-corporation rhetoric could scare off investors and thus delay statehood. But as you may have surmised by now, Hunt was not one to ever cool it a little. In his reply, he wrote that anyone was perfectly welcome to invest in Arizona, but he wasn't about to kowtow to rich muckety-mucks only interested in the almighty dollar and not in the welfare of anyone else. You did business here, you were treated the same as anyone else. Hunt would add, quote, Those who have or may hereafter invest their millions here will have to content themselves as well as they can afford to with status molded with an eye single to the welfare of the whole people. End quote. In 1909, Hunt did score a point for his democratic ideals when the legislature passed a law allowing for a direct primary system. We touched on this briefly in episodes 165 and 166, but before this law passed, there were no primary elections. Instead, the nominee for this or that party was decided at party conventions. The average voter was not involved. You probably remember from those episodes I just named that Congress actually decided not to use a direct primary when allowing Arizonans to elect delegates to the Constitutional Convention, hoping that this less democratic process would produce less radical delegates. I should also point out that in this same year, 1909, both Hunt supported a bill for voter-led initiatives that was shot down, and President William Howard Taft was in town telling Arizona to not include such measures in their upcoming state constitution. As I've said, by this point, Hunt was solidly in the pro-labor camp, and so unions, such as the Globe Miners Union, had his ear when it came to legislation. We can see the union's influence in such measures as extending the eight-hour workday to more people, creating a commission to write a mine safety code, and abolishing the Arizona Rangers. If I can add one more reason for their abolition to the list I made back in episode 147, it's that they've been used to help, mm, let's say, calm strikes in the past, something that Labor, and thus Hunt, was not willing to forget or forgive. However, not all of Hunt's bills were as laudable, especially looking back with modern eyes. For example, he passed, over Governor Kibbe's veto by the way, an English test for voter registration. These kind of laws are always meant to disenfranchise some segment of the population, and in this case it was Hispanics, whom the Democrats believed voted Republican. Another not-so-good move was his support of the territory's first segregation law passed in 1909, which officially allowed school districts to separate African Americans from other children if the majority of the district's residents voted to do so. First off, this seemed wholly unnecessary as African Americans made up a whopping 2% of the territory's population. But secondly, Hunt was even on the wrong side of history for his own time, as you may recall from episode 166 that just a year later, a segregation clause was shot down before it could be inserted into the Arizona Constitution. So all of this brings us up to just before 1910 and the Constitutional Convention. 
we've seen Hunt grow into an able politician, showing skills as an administrator during his role in the legislative leadership. He's also firmly in the progressive and labor camps, championing himself as a warrior for the people's rights to good conditions and direct impact on their government. This mantle of people's champion was only challenged by his truly progressive stances that did not fit well with his blue-collar constituents. That is, prohibition, women's suffrage, and wanting to ban gambling and prize-fighting. But we've also seen the seeds of much of his discontent. He was regularly and routinely frustrated with the legislature and how many of his reform-minded ideas were never given a proper hearing or really even considered. Hunt felt that way about the territorial legislature, and his opinion didn't change much when he had to deal with the state legislature. The people needed more power, he thought, and so he backed the initiative, referendum, and recall movements. I guess this is not going to surprise anyone, especially longtime listeners, but I ended up splitting Hunt's career across two episodes. I feel I covered his time in the Constitutional Convention during the election for governor pretty thoroughly in preceding episodes, so when we pick up next week, it's going to be with his first term when he tries to make the progressive promise of Arizona's Constitution a reality. From there, the next 20 years of his career will have a number of peaks and valleys, and he will be hailed as either a humanitarian visionary or as an ambitious, power-hungry tyrant. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.